Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty live in the Morton studio. Thanks for joining us today. My brother Darren will be joining me just shortly here today on the show. We're going to talk a little about spring cheatgrass control, but even if you don't have cheatgrass as an issue on your farm, a lot of these same lessons are going to apply to many grasses out there. And let's face it, grass is a problem on almost every crop farm that there is out there. And you know what? Uh, grass is a problem even in grass production. So let's say pasture ground. Uh, grass can be an issue, can be a challenge there. So we're going to talk about some of those things today. If you'd like to call in at any point during our show, our phone number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on Twitter, agphd media, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. All right, so I am joined now by my brother Darren. And uh, Darren, when we think about spring cheatgrass control, anything in particular you wanted to discuss today? Oh, yeah. The biggest thing here is we're talking about winter annual weeds. And when you've got a weed that gets started in the fall and then we're trying to control it in the spring, it's going to be a challenge. It's got a big root system underneath it. It's got a big jump on our crop. And once something like that's established, think about it like every other grass. Once it tillers out, it's going to be really difficult to get under control. Plus, in the spring, we've got, let's just say, not... Uh, an opportune weather environment. I mean, a lot of times we're dealing with conditions that are kind of variable. Uh, Maybe it's windier in the spring than it normally would be in your area. Maybe it's just a little cooler at night, those kinds of conditions. We have to have an actively growing weed to get it under control. So it's going to be really, really critical that we don't put this job off. This has got to be job number one in the spring. The first thing I thought of when you mentioned it's going to be windier in the spring, in South Dakota, where we're at, eastern, southeast South Dakota, the windiest months are October, March, and May. So we actually haven't had a real bad wind in March compared to normal. So that probably means we'll get more in April than we want. And May is supposed to be, I mean, normally close to, if not the windiest month we've got. So I agree with you on the wind. But what I'm much more concerned about is the temperature. And yes, if we could go back in time and kill all these winter annuals last fall, you'd have better success, no question about it. Whether we're talking cheatgrass, mare's tail, pennycress, henbit, any winter annual, I'd like to get those under control in the fall. But anyway, if you are going to deal with them in the spring, what we're always after is better weather. If we can have better weather, then we are going to have better control. And here's the reason. Let me me give an example on that. So let's just say that you're thinking, ooh, I have to plant corn, but I also need to spray my winter wheat. I'm going to spray the winter wheat on the nicest day of the week. And on a windier day, I'm going to be planting corn. That's no problem for my planter to deal with, but for my sprayer to deal with, obviously I can't. Or let's just say, you know, the wind isn't going to pick up until 1 o'clock today. I've got all morning that I could be out spraying great, get the spraying down in the morning, and then do your planting in the afternoon. You may have to bounce back and forth a little bit to pick the right times. Okay, when we're planting corn, the odds that spraying cheatgrass, uh, the odds that we're going to get control on spraying cheatgrass then uh, is really pretty slim. It all depends on when we're planting, but if we can plant in April like we normally do, most of those days are brutal. Those are not great days for spraying. And, and it, So to go back, I was just saying, 
we want ideal weather, and here's the reason why. Because when we're spraying any of these herbicides for cheatgrass, what we, what we need is three things. We need first for that herbicide to get absorbed into the leaf. Okay, well, if it's warm, we've got a much better chance. We then need that herbicide to get moved to the growing point. And there is one growing point on cheatgrass. We've got to get there. Well, the, the warmer it is, then the more active that plant is growing and the faster that herbicide is going to move to the growing point. And then the final thing we have to have, and this is the key, once the herbicide reaches the growing point, there needs to be a lethal dose there. It doesn't do us any good. In fact, it actually hurts us when we have a sublethal dose because now what's happening is that weed is building tolerance. It's building potentially resistance to that chemistry for the future. And you can see it now. We have certain herbicides that just simply aren't working as well on cheatgrass. That's not a good thing. So you've got to make sure that you get a lethal dose delivered to the growing point. So with Roundup, for example, what we end up suggesting to people is if the weather isn't ideal, bump your rate by 50% as long as you're still on label. Okay. Well, with a cheatgrass product, it is already going to be expensive. So do you really want to up your rate by 50%? And is that even going to be on label? In most cases, it's not. So you can't legally do it. And even if you did, it would cost a bunch more money. So my point is this, we've got to have good weather. And what I mean by good weather, I'd like the nighttime temp above 50. I'd like the daytime temp above 70. And I'd like that for two days before and two days after spring. So we have good growth before. So everything's working well in the plant. And so we have good growth afterwards to move the herbicide to the growing point and get a good kill. So I realize that you may be in North Dakota or you're across the border in Canada and this is going to be really challenging, but I'm just trying to tell you, if we have better weather, we have better control. That's ideally what I would like. So if you say, man, I'm only, I might only have one opportunity to have that great weather. Where do I want to use that? I want to use that on my weediest fields. Take your worst fields, spray those on the very best days. Darren, you got any other tips? we got about a minute left here. Well, the other thing with cheatgrass control is we get less control when we're tank mixing a broadleaf herbicide and a grass herbicide. So you mentioned we don't have many choices for grass herbicides that are going to take out cheatgrass in a grass crop. So that's the situation where when you have a super weedy field, you're going to have to make two applications, kill that grass, worry about the broadleaves on another pass. Yes, I agree. And you got to think about which one do you want to spray first. I'm always going to go after the grass first. Grass early on in a grass crop, like wheat, for example, is the worst thing possible. So, yes, I don't want broadleaves out there either, but I want to get the grass under control first, and then I'll go after the broadleaves in a week, 10 days, something like that. So we want to try to be timely with these winter annual weeds like cheatgrass. We'll talk about more... Uh, we'll talk more about cheatgrass and other grass control here on Ag PhD Radio. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean field, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean field and get rewarded with Roundup Ready Plus when you choose the proven power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Want to turn smart agronomics into smart economics? 
Go with the all-new Grow Smart Rewards program. One, start with a smart agronomic plan. Two, qualify with the purchase of a participating BASF herbicide. Three, earn one plus dollars per acre for each qualifying pair-up brand. Plus, you may qualify for an additional $75 per gallon back on our industry-leading fungicides. For full program details, go to GrowSmartRewards.com. Grow Smart with BASF. Worried about glyphosate-resistant weeds and grasses in your corn? Unleash the power of new Impact Z herbicide and get the early post-application advantage you've been waiting for. Save $3 per acre when you combine Impact Z with a qualifying insecticide purchase. Go to buy2save3.com for details. Buy2save3 is a service mark and Impact Z is a trademark owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Every farmer knows there are lots of steps to having a perfect season. Don't let your fertilizer plan be the step that trips you up. For over 35 years, AgriLiquid has had the experts and the products that'll help you move closer to your target. No matter when you apply fertilizer, no matter how, you'll hit the bullseye. AgriLiquid is the perfect fit for your planter fertilizer program. To learn more, go to agroliquid.com. AgroLiquid moves you closer to your target. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here live in the Morton studio. If you'd like to call in at any point today, our number again is 844-44-AG-PHD. Well, first on the show today, we're going to talk grain markets just a little bit. We've got Scott Harms with us. He is with Grain PhD and Archer Financial Services. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm very good, Brian. Good afternoon. All right. So first big reports coming out here this Friday uh, of the spring season. What are things kind of looking like? Yeah, we, we've talked about this before. You know, the the impact of uh, traditional market fundamentals in this environment, they've been kind of squelched by the lack of an established trade deal with China. So normally the release of the March stocks and acreage report, it's one of the biggest ones of the year. Uh, it's always set up uh, some pretty big price move when it's released. But there'll, there'll be a reaction, but it won't be anything like probably what we're used to unless it's a real shocker. But what's unique this year is that the funds have a record short position in the, in corn leading up to this report. So we'll see how that plays out. That being said, uh, we are getting our first look at acreage based on surveys that have taken place in late February. We, we have some acreage estimates from the Outlook Conference in November and again in February, but those estimates are from the, the economists uh, in Washington, the government bean counters, you know, this report is going to be based on surveys and, and uh, you know, those expectations. Um, we're expecting corn uh, uh, acres to go up by uh, 2 million acres, just over 2 million acres over last year, and beans just, they'll go down about 3 million acres. Uh, cotton and sorghum acres are expected to go up. Uh, I'll maintain that we need to add more corn acres uh, as we move forward, and the price is going to have to do that for us, but we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, we're also going to be getting updated stocks numbers for corn and soybeans. Corn stocks are expected to be the third largest ever, but this is going to be the first, at least it's expected, to be the first year-over-year decline in like six years. So um, we are, are at least moving through some of this supply. Soybean stocks are expected to be the largest ever for March 1st. So years ago, it was common to get surprises on the stock side of this report, but the recent years, that hasn't been the case. So they might be getting a little bit better at gathering that information. 
All right. One of the things with Green PhD, it's really about educating farmers so they have a little more insight into just their overall grain marketing plan. Well, you mentioned funds are record short. So first of all, explain what that means. And then let's talk about, can you talk maybe about the ramifications of that moving forward and what you would project when you hear, hey, the funds are record short? Yeah, the uh, fund position is, um, you know, the funds that participate, they have to release their information, their positions to the CFTC each Tuesday. So, uh, and then that information is available to the market on Friday. So, and it's re- by the time it's released, it's three days old. But we have an idea then where the funds, the big players in the market, which side of the market are they're on and what's the depth of their position is. And for them to have a record short position, any short position this time of year is rare. It's, it happened. It happened in 2016 most recently. Um, but it is rare to have a short position and to have uh, a record short position, again, given given the fundamentals that we have in corn, I think is, is a real surprise. So that's going to be uh, certainly closely watched um, by the trade. Uh, and who knows why they built this position. Uh, unfortunately, they don't share that information with me. But you know, some have said that there there's a hedge against their stock portfolio in case the trade talks with China fail. If this is the case, then it's going to take some dry ink on the agreement in order to get them to shift out of their positions. But what it can do is set up some real wild swings for the market moving forward. I mentioned 2016. That's our best example. Um, you know, the funds were short about 200,000 contracts going into you know, about the middle of March that year. And they flipped around, and by middle April, they were flat, and then by uh, mid-June, they were long 250,000 contracts, so they can turn things around in a hurry, um, and they exited their short positions. We rallied about 12 cents into the, excuse me, 12% into the middle of April, uh, and then another 11% into June, so if we did that this year, that would translate uh, basis dish corn, a uh, move to 430 and 475, so I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but I think it's important for, you know, when the funds are involved in the market, we can move uh, further and and more aggressively one direction or the other um, a lot more dramatically. So people need to be prepared. You may have advisors saying, well, we can't rally much more than 10 or 15 cents. Well, if the funds decide to get out in a short period of time, they can move the market very quickly. And, and uh, I think you ought to be able to use that to your advantage. So basically, they've sold a whole bunch of grain. They need to buy it. And when they're buying the grain, then uh, basically the market starts to go up typically is the reaction. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And what we tend to do, if they were short 100,000 contracts, we can look back through history, and we've got data that goes back a long ways, mm-hmm. and we can look at it and say, well, they have more that they could sell. And uh, they always could you know, sell more, but the fact that they're short 250,000 contracts, they've never been that short before. So we use that as a guide and say, well, how much more can they sell down here? Um, and if they're not going to be sellers, farmers certainly aren't going to be sellers. And we we extrapolate from that that uh, there's limited downside potential since they're already record short. The key is how quickly will they get out of those short positions if things change. If we get a if we get a trade deal done, which I think will be the true catalyst, and we have any kind of uh, blip on the radar with already saturated soils and poor conditions so far, if we can get them to flip out of their short position, it opens up a tremendous amount of potential. Now, there'll be sell orders above the market. Farmers should be t- selling into it, but uh, I think a lot of the sell orders have been cleared, so we have to get above the old highs in order to probably run into uh, fresh sell orders. So we should have a vacuum, a little bit of a void 
um, where the market can move up rather easily. There will we will run into resistance, and that's the time when producers need to be just scaling into those hedges. But uh, don't underestimate. Uh, we don't. We, I don't know how quickly they're going to get out and how aggressively they're going to get out, but. You know, they can turn a market around very quickly, but don't underestimate. Have some optimistic orders out there, um, and don't let someone tell you that we're only limited to a 10 to 15-cent rally, because it certainly could be more than that. And $250,000 contracts, if I'm running the math right, that'd be 1.25 billion bushels of corn. So that's a lot of corn they're going to have to buy back. Yeah, and again, it all comes down to how quickly they do it. If they buy it back over... Um, exit over the course of three weeks, we'll just have a steady to higher trade. And we'll look back and say, well, that didn't move the market much. But sure. Again, my argument is that there won't be a lot of sell orders initially, yep. um, so it's going to allow the market to move more aggressively. Okay, so what could a farmer do in this case? I mean, what's what what's kind of a good idea for them? We just have a couple minutes left here based on some of the information you've talked about. And we know there are a lot of things up in the air, planting, China, reports, uh, the funds, everything else. Uh, w- what should a farmer be doing? Be ready. Um, and I know that they've heard that before, but... Uh you know, set where you think the market can go to. We're talking about 415 to 425. We'd have, we have offers in uh, to put on a trade a, head, a price floor in December corn at four dollars by buying the four dollar put sell in the 440 calls. That would kick in if we get a move towards the 415 to 420. We've had those in place for a while. We're willing to be patient because we believe that the market is ready to turn in our favor and allow that opportunity. You may have to get more aggressive. It doesn't happen. But the main thing is just have those offers in here. We're in a little bit of a void here where, you know, we're not in the field. Uh, we're ready to get in the, we're, you know, getting anxious to get in the field, but that's still, a, you know, a few weeks away in several cases, in many cases. Uh, so it's a great time to set those price targets, um, identify, you know, hey, get them in at your elevator, get them in, you know, in your futures market, uh, in the options market, but be ready to pull the trigger. We also had some people interested in buying some courage calls to sell into down the road. We've talked about those before. We're looking at June, excuse me, the July short dated 430 calls, spend about six cents or $300 a contract, not a lot of money. And it, it reopens the upside as you make sales and you can be more aggressive knowing that you've got those calls in place. Well, I think it's good advice to be ready. That's the reason why we established Grain PhD a while back, just to try to get more good information out there. So if you're listening today, we would just really encourage you, start working on this. If you haven't already, just go to grainphd.com. You can get a whole bunch of great free information. Just learn more about grain markets, grain marketing in general. You can also sign up to get the free GrainBridge software. That's a really nice tool to track your positions and where you're at in terms of your overall grain production and sales. So I, I just I, I think that is an awesome tool that's available also for free for you. And if you've got any questions, just go to grainphd.com or by calling 844-GRAIN-01. Well, Scott, thanks a lot for the time today. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Tired of that old warped poly boom ruining your spray applications? Express Boom from Hypro is a fully assembled stainless steel boom that ensures an even application of chemicals every time. Don't wait another season. Upgrade today. Hypro, helping you spray better. 
Interested in strip tillage? You should know about the Soil Warrior from ETS. With one-pass efficiency, optimized nutrient placement, and reduced production costs for higher profitability, the Soil Warrior brings the future to your farm. Visit SoilWarrior.com to learn more. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. In order to be the best farmer you can be, you've got to have a grain marketing plan. But what do you do when you're too busy out in the fields trying to maximize yield? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are always busy learning more about how to make our farm more successful. That's why we use Grain PhD to learn more about grain marketing and to work with our Grain PhD risk expert to create a complete grain marketing strategy. Visit grainphd.com to learn more about a free consultation for your operation. High-yield corn growers know that feeding the crop and soil are keys to maximizing yield potential. Nutex EDA and Reverb are specifically formulated to help manage limiting factors associated with today's farming conditions. Nutex EDA works within the plant to support nutrient mobility and utilization. Reverb focuses on the soil, providing beneficial trace elements which help condition the root zone for optimal microbial activity. Low use rates and superb tank mix compatibility make Nutex EDA and Reverb no-brainers in the high-yield grower toolbox. Build with the best. When you choose Morton Buildings for your next farm storage building, you'll experience the Morton Advantage at every step, starting before the walls even go up. Since the value of our buildings is in its ability to protect what you have stored inside, we ensure that every component is researched and tested to withstand the elements in all weather conditions. And we back it up with the strongest warranty in the business. Looks better. Built stronger. Lasts longer. Learn more at mortonbuildings.com. With the success of the Case IH Tiger Quad Track and Magnum Road Track tractors, it's no secret why Case IH is the leader of the track. So it wasn't surprising when the competition started imitating us. Because Case IH offered the first five axle design to give you more power to the ground with less berming and compaction, all to help you be more productive. Still, we're flattered. In fact, if we weren't already red, we'd be blushing. To learn more, visit caseih.com tracks. Thanks for tuning in today to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here live in the Morton studio. If you want to call in to talk about our topic, spring cheatgrass control, or if you have any questions or anything you want to talk about that's going on on your farm, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. Well, first on the show today, we have Dallas Peterson. He is with Kansas State University. Dallas, thanks a lot for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, so... Down in Kansas, I am just curious, first of all, about what's the overall wheat crop looking like? Was survival good this winter? Um, are you thinking are, are good things going into the spring, or what's your overall feeling with the wheat crop down there? Well, the wheat crop's always very unpredictable, but certainly it's uh, been quite a year with the, all the rain and snow last fall and through the winter and the delayed spring. And so we have quite a variety of uh, conditions with our wheat. Some of the wheat that got planted early obviously got up and was well-established and quite a ways along, but a lot of the wheat wasn't planted until late, and so it really didn't tiller in the fall. 
Uh, it's just kind of starting to take off now. Uh, and we also didn't have much of an opportunity to do any treatments in the fall either. So uh, everything is pretty much going to be condensed uh, in this uh, next month or so. And by treatments, I assume you mean herbicide and controlling weeds like cheatgrass. Yeah, for the cheatgrass uh, species, downy brome, Japanese brome, and cheat, uh, we have uh, three primary options, I guess you would say. Uh, Olympus and Powerflex HL, which are very similar as to what they do and how they are used. Uh, they can be used on any type of wheat. Uh, they need to be applied between the three-leaf and jointing stage of growth for best safety. Uh, they need surfactant. Uh, and uh, you can apply them in a 50% blend of fertilizer, although we generally recommend not applying them uh, with a total fertilizer carrier. And so they can provide uh, pretty good control of cheat uh, and Japanese brome. They're not quite as good on downy brome. Uh, and typically they're better with a fall application than a spring application. But uh, this year we, again, just did not have much of a choice. Sure. Okay, so you mentioned three things. Uh, you, you said Olympus and PowerFlex. What else? Well, the other primary option would be beyond herbicide, but only if you planted clear field wheat. Uh, so, again, the clear field wheat is uh, ALS resistant, and beyond is the herbicide that's labeled for use on that. You can't use beyond on any other wheat, or it's going to kill it or severely injure it. Use guidelines are really pretty much the same with the Beyond as with the PowerFlex and the Olympus. And again, all three of those can provide pretty good control of those winter annual brome species. Uh, again, not quite as good on downy brome. They also have some pretty decent uh, winter annual broadleaf weed control as well. Uh, but if you do have a number of winter annual broadleaves, you'd probably suggest a tank mixing with MCPA. Again, you want to kind of make sure your wheat is really in the three-leaf uh, to early tillering stages of growth, I think, you know, to, to have our best safety and want to try to get those treatments applied before jointing uh, so that you can get good coverage. Now, with Olympus and PowerFlex, you mentioned any type of wheat, but uh, just for clarification here, I assume you're talking any type of winter wheat because spring wheat and PowerFlex, uh, that, that sometimes is not the best, right? Well, yeah, and I'm talking about Kansas here, so almost all the <laughs> right. we grow is winter wheat. <laughs> yep, I just have to bring that up because we have a lot right. of spring wheat up in our country, and especially as you go north. Okay, so when when you talk about Olympus, PowerFlex, and beyond, they are all ALS herbicides, and a lot of farmers out there are very aware of these ALS-resistant weeds like kochia, water hemp, mare's tail. What's the status with any of these brome species and cheat? Are you concerned about ALS resistance? Have you found any ALS resistance? What, what, what are your feelings with that? Well, that is a concern, and we actually did document uh, ALS resistant cheat in Japanese brome uh, several years ago, and we suspect we may have some ALS resistant downy brome as well. But fortunately, it hasn't seemed to increase and expand like uh, the ALS resistant summer annual uh, weeds that we have out there. So, Part of that, I think, is due to the fact that most of our winter wheat is in a, a good rotation of crops. And yep. so, you know, that gives us an opportunity to help manage those uh, during that rotational time frame. All right. What else in terms of herbicide application timing? You mentioned three-leaf to jointing like with Olympus and PowerFlex. But what else should a farmer be doing in terms of water, pressure, um, the days he picks to spray? Give us some more tips on that. 
Well, you do want to have both the wheat and the weeds actually growing, and, and so that uh, is occurring in the southern part of Kansas now, and, and the wheat's taken off pretty good in central Kansas. It really hasn't taken off yet uh, in uh, the northern part of the state, especially in northwest Kansas, so that's kind of the first thing. Again, if that wheat was late planted and late developing, you want to make sure that you know it's at least approaching that tillering stage of growth uh, to have your best safety. Uh, as far as spray volumes are concerned, you know you want good coverage, uh, but these herbicides aren't as uh, particular with spray volumes as as some of the other herbicides that we use. So really, with anywhere from you know uh, you know five to fifteen or even twenty is fine. Uh, you know ten to fifteen would be typically where we fall out uh, with those applications. How about other chemistries? pre-emerge like let's say i've got prepare or varro or maybe even a late pre early post zidua have have you done any work with any of those products well we have uh we don't use much of the prepare type of treatments uh here in the southern plains uh the zidua and the anthem uh, those can be applied you know delayed pre or early post but really yep. The weed control activity is through pre-emergence residual activity. And with all the moisture that we did have, we probably do have, you know, some of those winter annual grasses already emerged. So uh, at this point in time, I think you're probably going to get a lot better performance uh, with the foliar active herbicides. Yeah, absolutely. It's just when you talk about, okay, all these things are ALS and we're concerned about resistance, that's where we're starting to get more questions about Zidua, the group 15, or, you know, you can find that in Anthem also. And and doing that as a fall treatment, like you say, uh, delayed pre or very early post. I, I mean, personally, I've never found that the group 15s give a lot of activity in any of these brome species, but do you think it's worthwhile just as a helper? Well, it, it may be, and we have seen varied results uh, with those treatments. Uh, again, a lot of it just depends upon, you know, rainfall patterns and emergence patterns and that sort of thing. The best, again, the best practice, however, to try to manage that resistance is through crop rotation. And uh, we're using a lot of those group 15s pretty heavily in our other crops as well. So uh, I don't know. They, they just aren't as convenient to use, it doesn't seem like, and maybe they don't have quite uh, the, the same impact in, in wheat that they have in our summer crop. All right. Here's the other question that is coming up a lot this winter because times are not fantastic on most farms. We farm too, and you know the, the money just isn't there like it was a few years ago. So a lot of people are asking, well, how bad is it anyway? How many uh, plants do I have to really have before it justifies a treatment? Because Olympus and PowerFlex and beyond, they're not cheap products. So how do you feel about that? How many, how many weeds should a farmer kind of be looking for before he decides to pull the trigger? Well, unfortunately, there's no easy answer to that question. Uh, competition is highly variable and depends on so many things like uh, when uh, the weeds germinate relative to the crop, what your ground conditions are, your stands, and everything else. So we, we have tried to look at that through the years, but again, just no consistency there. The one thing I would say is that, you know, I always tell farmers that in many cases, even though it's expensive to control your weeds, it, it may cost you a lot more not to control them. Uh, than to control them. 
so again, if if you've got a history of cheatgrass in those fields and you expect that it's going to be there and you go out and scout and you see those seedlings, uh, it, it will probably more than pay for itself, even though it seems like a major event. Yeah, one of the things my dad always talked to me about, because he was originally a farmer in Iowa, moved to South Dakota, where they get about two-thirds the amount of rainfall, he just said, weeds hurt me a lot more in South Dakota when I have less rain. So I realized for a farmer who says, boy, I don't have a lot of rain here, well, that's when weed control can be even more important because of the, the moisture that that takes out of the ground. Well, we've been talking to Dallas. Yep, we've been talking to Dallas Peterson with Kansas State. Dallas, thanks a lot for the time today. Appreciate talking to you. Okay, again, it was my pleasure. You bet. Thanks. All right, stay tuned. We'll talk a little more cheat grass right after this. Your independent spirit is more rewarding than ever before. Unlike incentive programs that require growers to purchase a particular seed brand or to bundle certain products, the FMC Freedom Pass program rewards you for making the best choices for your fields. You decide what's best for your operation from pre-plant to harvest. Your retailer and FMC take care of the rest. It's really that simple. The exclusive agronomic rewards, performance assurances, application innovations, and product financing of the FMC Freedom Pass program make it easier to protect your crops and cash flow. That's what we mean when we say we give you more freedom in the field. You'll experience more control and confidence, too. Generics and imitators can't promise that. Visit your authorized FMC retailer or fmcfreedompass.com to calculate your potential financial incentive and learn more. Every farmer knows there are lots of steps to having a perfect season. Don't let your fertilizer plan be the step that trips you up. For over 35 years, AgroLiquid has had the experts and the products that'll help you move closer to your target. No matter when you apply fertilizer, no matter how, you'll hit the bullseye. AgroLiquid is the perfect fit for your planter fertilizer program. To learn more, go to agroliquid.com. AgroLiquid moves you closer to your target. One year it could be moisture stress, another pythium or nematodes. So you need your soybeans to rise ready for whatever the season holds. Now one simple decision provides coverage on four fronts. The Acceleron portfolio, fungicides, insecticides, bioenhancers, and an industry-leading nematicide that strikes where nematodes attack. This season, rise stronger with Acceleron seed treatment products. Learn more at acceleronsas.com slash rise ready. Performance may vary. It's important to use proper PPE when handling treated seed. If you're a rancher who's obsessed with keeping your pastures clear, turn to Grace on Next Herbicide. It offers superior broadleaf weed control, so instead of thinking about weeds, you can think about the money you'll save growing more grass and buying less feed. Used early in the season, Graze on Next also provides residual activity that controls newly emerged weed seedlings, giving you season-long control. Start enhancing your land while you protect it. Visit LeaveTheWeedsToUs.com to learn more about Graze on Next. Always read and follow label directions. White mold, sudden death syndrome, root rot. If you raise soybeans, it may seem like you have all the cards stacked against you when it comes to disease. But did you know there is a new cost-effective seed treatment which can help prevent all three? Heads Up Seed Treatment offers a new proactive approach for dealing with fungal and bacterial diseases. Compatible with other seed treatments, hedge your bet against disease this spring. Ask your dealer for Heads Up today. To locate a dealer, visit headsupst.com.
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio, live in the Morton studio. Today we've been talking about spring cheatgrass control. We are going to get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag just shortly as well. If you've got any questions for us, you can send them in at radio at agphd.com or give me a call here at the Morton studio, 844-44-AG-PHD. Next on the show, we have Brian Mueller. He is with University of Wyoming. Brian, how are you doing today? Just fine, fine, Brian. How are you? Excellent. Okay, so we've been talking about cheatgrass control in wheat, especially, earlier in the show. But I want to discuss this just a little bit in range and pasture land. First of all, how big of an issue is cheat downy brome, Japanese brome? How big of an issue is that in the state of Wyoming? You know, it, it really is a big issue. And if you don't, if you look outside of the state of Wyoming and look kind of farther to, to the west... Uh, I would argue that that cheatgrass and other invasive annual grasses are are potentially the most impactful suite of in, non-native invasive weeds that we have, just because they occur on so many acres, and and they occur across a number of different ecological systems. So, really widespread, really problematic, and they infect more. They affect more than just ag production. Uh, they really have a lot of impacts on wildlife and things like that as well. So I'd say a really big problem. Talk to me about the impact on wildlife. What do you mean there? So let's think about something um, that's been in the news a lot for the past 10 years, something like a sage grouse. Yep. Uh, if you look if you look at the sagebrush ecosystem, which we can, we can think through pluses and minuses about the amount of sagebrush that you might have in a pasture from a grazing standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, but that's a key component for uh, sage-grouse habitat. And so the ability for things like cheatgrass or Japanese brome to build up these fine fuels that dry out early in the summer and then encourage wildfires on pretty large acreages, uh, our big sagebrush subspecies don't respond well to fire. And so that that relationship between annual grasses, fire, and sort of weak recruitment from sagebrush after fire makes makes invasive annual grasses the second leading cause of habitat degradation for something like sage grouse. And then you got trickle down effects to things like mule deer yep. and other sagebrush obligate wildlife species. So big big issue. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I was coming at it from just simply the crop perspective a little bit earlier, talking about how much it takes for moisture out of the ground. But where we farm, we don't even think about wildfires going across the, the acres. So, uh, all right. So in those situations then, what what should a farmer or a rancher be doing to stop that cheatgrass so this doesn't happen? No, it's a, it's a great question. I would say in some ways it's situationally specific. And we usually encourage people to, to take a really hard look at the amount of cheatgrass or annual grasses that they have in a given pasture and think through uh, whether it's warranted to try to do some kind of herbicide control. Um, it's not 100% negative from a grazing standpoint. Yep. As some of your folks would probably know is that early in the spring, it's actually pretty darn good forage, but you might only get two weeks of a usable forage window out of it before it turns into something that's really not worth that much. And so I would say the, the number the, the number one thing is to start by understanding uh, the situation that you've got and then developing your strategy, whether that be changing your grazing practices or implementing some kind of chemical control or thinking about other options. Um, 
after that, after kind of getting a good assessment of the situation that you deal with. All right, I want to talk to you about herbicides in a second, but you said change the grazing habits. So I assume you're talking about rotational grazing, but when is the most important time that a farmer should be doing that or a rancher? Is it in the fall then, because that's when the cheatgrass is getting established, or is it really all year round? It's a great question again. I would say being aware of the impacts of your grazing practices all year round um, because the balance, and this is also important when we get to the herbicide section, as with anything, the balance is, is damaging that, that target weed species and then limiting the, the negative unintended consequences on those species that you want to have. So if, you're, if your rangelands or your pastures have a strong component of desirable cool season grasses that are in there with the cheatgrass. The potential for um, excessively grazing the cheatgrass in an effort to remove it also increases the chances that you're going to damage those desirable cool season species that are on that site because they're both growing at the same time period. So if you've got a mix of cool season and warm season species, you might have an opportunity to use that grazing to kind of negatively impact cheatgrass in, in a little bit with a little more flexibility and timing. I'm pretty convinced, Brian, though, that if we have any kind of soil moisture that persists on that site after an intensive grazing event, that cheatgrass is still going to produce a seed because it's pretty resilient. Um, so I don't know that that's going to be the way to get rid of it, but I think it's definitely a way to get a little bit of benefit out of it and then potentially stress that plant going through the year and shift the competitive balance toward the perennials. Talking about the competitive balance, and I'm just going to throw this out to you. Let's say that I had ground that had been crop ground and I want to turn it back to pasture ground. What species of grass should I be putting in there that would help me the most in terms of naturally taking care of my cheatgrass? Do you have any suggestions? You know, and there's a lot of research through the years that kind of support this. The number one perennial grass species that we have right now for, for just from competing with cheatgrass standpoint, something like crested wheatgrass. When you think about crested wheatgrass from, from a grazing production standpoint, it might not really be all that much of a benefit as far as a trade for cheatgrass. I mean, it's going to stay greener a little bit longer into the year. You might be able to come back onto that crested stand in the fall when you get some moisture and regrow uh, some, some decent forage there. Uh, there are some other species that I think things like um, thick spike wheatgrass or intermediate wheatgrass that kind of stand up a little bit to some of our herbicides that we would use and provide a, a rhizomatous growth characteristic. Um, I think those are some, some things that have shown through the years to be somewhat competitive. Uh, and ideally, you could get somewhat of a diverse mix in there that's going to give you quality palatable forage for a little bit longer during the growing season than than just uh, if you went back with with a single species so sure. try to get a diverse mix on a site like that too sure all right how about chemical control in pasture and rangeland for uh, for cheatgrass downy brome Japanese brome what are your suggestions there so most of the work that that goes out for chemical control would have gone out last fall um, with yep. uh, something like Plateau or a Mazepic in range and pasture has probably been the the standard for years and years for annual grass control. Uh, and we, we typically see the best results with something like that, either as a pre-emergent herbicide 
or as an early post. Uh, yep. If you get sufficient fall moisture, as you mentioned earlier, most of our cheatgrass will have emerged last fall. Right. The, the challenge with getting out right now is, is really logistics uh, to get yep. get your soil conditions uh, firm enough that you can get out with some equipment. Um, and and you, you're going to have to potentially think about adding something that has some post-emergent activity. A uh, low-cost option would be to, to put some kind of low-rate glyphosate in with that mix. But again, you've got that balance that if some of your desirable grasses are breaking dormancy, you're going to potentially injure those with, with something like glyphosate as well. Um, so spring cheatgrass or Japanese brome control in rangeland situations, in my opinion, is just a little bit more logistically difficult than trying to do your, your stuff in the fall. Uh, can a farmer have that aerially applied? Yes, and in fact, um, with many of the situations that we deal with, uh, rolling terrain, difficult <laughs> to cover area, yep. um, and with with these newer herbicides that we apply at such low rates, um, I think in many cases aerial application is more precise than our ground rigs would be in those really difficult sites. Yes. And if, if some neighbors can get together and block up some acreage, then sometimes your cost per acre would go down uh, with, with aerial application. Yep, good advice. All right, again, we've been talking to Brian Mueller. He is with University of Wyoming. Brian, that was great stuff. Really appreciated having you on the show. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. All right, we are going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag. That's coming up right after this. If you've got any questions for us, it's radio at agphd.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. pasture should have two things, grass and cattle. No weeds, no brush. That's why Chaparral Herbicide offers the broadest spectrum weed control available. It controls weeds other products can miss like buckbrush and Canada thistle. And less weeds and brush in your pastures means more forage so you spend less on feed. Chaparral also suppresses seed heads, lessening the effects of fescue toxicosis, all while providing season-long residual control. Visit noweedsnobrush.com today and learn more about Chaparral. Your grain bin fans can cost you a lot. High electric bills from running when conditions are not ideal, shrinkage from overdried grain, and spoiled grain all take money out of your pocket. With the STEPS GMS app temperature humidity switch, get your bin fans to start making you money. Only run vans when the conditions are right. Eliminate shrink and spoilage in your bins. Deliver grain in top condition at market moisture. When every dollar counts, you need STEPS GMS. Contact us today at stepsgms.com. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. In farming, getting things done early has a way of setting you up for success. Like using Corvus for an early season win over weeds. Corvus keeps even the toughest weeds from gaining a foothold. Multiple sites of action deliver superior control of emerged weeds. And later, Corvus reactivates with just a half inch of rain to take out any new weeds that may have sprouted. So get an early season win against weeds with Corvus for end of season rewards. Always read and follow label instructions. Corvus is a restricted use pesticide. 
You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. Farmers, you put a lot of money into growing the best crops possible every year, so it only makes sense to make sure every bit of that ends up in your tank. Estes Patented Concave stop rotor loss with less green damage. Best of all, they work in all crops. No more changing concaves. Call 765-650-4131 or visit EstesPerformanceConcaves.com and get what you harvest. That's 765-650-4131. Come on in. The Ag PhD mailbag is about to begin. All right, our first question here is from Kel in Northwest Iowa. He asks, do you put on any kind of one or two day training on how to take plant leaf tissue analysis tests? Uh, Kel, no, we don't put on training specifically to do that. It's really not that complicated uh, the source we often refer people to is Midwest Labs down in Omaha. They have a plant tissue sampling guide. We also have a link to that under the agphd.com website and our resources tab. Uh, Darren, what, what, what do you think about that? Well, how do you usually start when a farmer asks you, okay, how do I take plant tissue analysis? Well, it depends on which crop and what stage you're in. And the big thing that I would say is, okay, why are you pulling plant tissue analysis? If the response is, I have a problem in my field, I suspect that it may be nutrient-related. I just want to find out right now a snapshot of today what's in my plant. That's great. Pull that plant tissue test. Maybe even pull a soil test right ne next to that plant, and let's compare notes and see what's going on. If a farmer says, look, I'm trying to pull plant tissue tests because I want to get a gauge on my fertility program and my crop production to see if I can go from 200 bushel to 220 bushel in the next few years. Then I say, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to start a plan out and we want to pull tissue tests all through the season once a week and see what we can learn from that. And that's a little bit different. So in that case, my recommendation would start around timing and, hey, I want to get that plant as soon as it's just a few inches tall and, and we'll work all the way up uh, until we've got grain uh, or maybe till the end of the season, whatever. It's generally 10 or 12 weeks that we'll do it. Uh, so that's, that's the big thing. And then, again, we'll just look at which crop it is and which leaves we should pull and why reinvent the wheel. Midwest Labs has got a pretty good guide on a wide range of crops start with that. And if you see a crop that, hey, I, I'm raising watermelons, I didn't see anything about that, then great. You may uh, may look for some different sources on that particular crop. But on corn and beans and wheat and uh, a lot of the common crops grown in the United States, uh, they've got a good guide on when and where to pull those tests. All right. You mentioned if you see a specific issue in your crop. So here's one of the first ones you may see this year. You may hear this term, rapid growth syndrome, in corn and there will be some yellow tops to plants 
First of all, rapid growth syndrome is nonsense. There's no such thing. What it is, it's a nutrient deficiency. So people will say, oh, it'll grow out of it. Well, sure it will, but you already lost a whole bunch of yield. So why don't you figure out what's going on in the plant and let's fix it moving forward. When I first started seeing that maybe 20 years ago as a young agronomist, I went out, pulled plant tissue samples because I looked at the plant, and when it's upper leaves, I just assumed, oh, it's probably sulfur deficiency, and most of the time, instead, it's zinc deficiency. But the point that Darren's making here is, when you see a problem, find out for sure what it is. Because if I would have told a person, oh, it's sulfur, and then you spend money on sulfur and it's not, well, you're not very happy, right? So just do some analysis and figure out what is going on if you see any problems out there. All right, next question comes from Justin. He asks, will you guys be doing any videos on pre-emerge control for grazing pastures? I, I'd like to see what you think about this. I graze my horses all summer long, but last year I had a problem with dandelions. Is there anything I can use pre-emerge for pasture weed control when I have dandelions? Well, Justin, in terms of pre-emerge, I don't, it, it, what pre-emerge is, is before the crop or grass comes out of the ground. Well, with pastures, the grass is already up. So there isn't really anything we're going to be talking about pre-emerge in an established pasture already. But what we would talk about is early post-emerge as soon as you can in the spring when the weather gets decent, then you want to go out and do some spring. So my favorite would probably, for dandelions, would probably be distinct. Darren, what do you think? Anything you like better? Well, here's what I like, Brian. I like distinct, but I like it in the fall. With dandelions, are going to get a start in the fall. I would try and hit them at that point. You still have warm weather in the fall. You still have active growth. Uh, and those weeds are, are about to put a lot of nutrition down into their root system to try to live again next year. And if you knock them out in the fall, then you also have winter coming up, which they're going to struggle with too and can help finish off any that you didn't completely get. But the thing I like about the fall, you don't have all those crops growing around you that you have to worry about either. You know, you talk about spring and all of a sudden we got soybeans popping up that aren't dicamba tolerant. And they're certainly not tolerant. There's no tolerant soybeans too distinct because you have two modes of action in there. So for me, I like doing that fall treatment. Then in the spring, what I would be thinking about is I would probably be running with a high rate of Freelex. And the reason why is we don't have the volatility component like we do with the old formulations, the amines and esters of 240. It's a different kind of 240. It's 240-choline. And if you talk to your neighbors and they say, look, I'm planting extend soybeans, well, then I might use dicamba in my pasture in the spring. If, you, if your neighbor says, well, I'm using enlist soybeans, well, then I'm for sure using a 2,4-D product. But, you know, you want to see what's around you for neighboring crops. That's why I like that fall treatment even better. But, hey, here we are. It's spring. you got dandelions right now. Um, I like distinct, but just get it done early before you have other crops up around you just to be extra safe. Roger from Illinois writes in, and he says, how much boron can I safely apply foliar? I want to spray two app in two different applications. And let's see, I'm, I'm looking to see. He says corn and soybeans. He doesn't specifically say if this is going to go on corn or on soybeans. So, Darren, how do you feel about that? How much boron do you think he can safely put on in each application he's doing two shots? 
Well, I hear a lot of farmers around the country that are putting on a quart of boron each time uh, that they're going with foliar apps, and that's fine. The challenge with the liquids, uh, you can get them into the plant, and that's great. And if you need them, awesome. If you've got dramatic deficiencies out there, though, I'd really like to see some dry used soil applied. You can do that cheap, and then you can come back. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different liquid boron sources. I, I like AgriLiquids product, but I, I know there's other ones out there that are combinations with other nutrients, too. I mean, there's a bunch of different ones you can utilize. Uh, but for me, it's generally start with something down, broadcast a, a dry-type product early, and then come back later on with uh, – Various liquids, you can see which ones work best for you, uh, but maybe a quart each time. Yeah, and he sent me his soil test. His boron levels are really low, so I agree 100%. I'd want to see some dry in addition to maybe a little foliar uh, feeding. Okay, his next question, he's got several questions here. His next one is he wants to put on 24 pounds of sulfur with AMS and then also some zinc sulfate, like 30 pounds of zinc sulfate. He says, is this safe? Well, Roger, if you are broadcasting that, then I'm really not too worried about it in corn and beans. We've done that and, you know, I, I would feel pretty comfortable with that. But you know, and looking at your soil tests, I think you would be in good shape. You have lots of calcium out there. You don't have much zinc at all. So it doesn't sound like you're going to overdo that. But in terms of can you, I, he didn't say here, this is foliar or broadcast. I, I, I mean, broadcast pre-emerge. Yes, you can put that on. Foliar to put on that much zinc sulfate, that could really cause a problem. And even to put on that much ammonium sulfate foliar could also cause a problem unless you put that with a whole bunch of water. All right. Uh, yeah, and the other thing with big changes to the fertility program, you may want to just do that on a small amount of acres first and then, then kind of gauge safety, number one. And then over a two- or three-year period, you can see, hey, did I get a return on investment from building up levels of different nutrients? And, you know, if you take a complete soil analysis to see, all right, what is still short, uh, you can see what's out of balance at that point as well. All right, later on in his email, he does say he doesn't have any in-furrow or two-by-two ability, just dry spread or liquid spraying. So again, if we're, like Darren said earlier, if you've got big deficiencies, we like doing dry early, you know, preferably even in the fall in a lot of cases for a lot of nutrients, if we need to really build those up. We like the liquid right. and some foliar feeding when we're talking about small amounts that we're a little short on, that that, that works out quite well. He also asks, yeah, with I my like soil having, tests. I like having highly available liquids, Brian, as yep. part of that program. If you're deficient, okay. Getting the dry out there to try and build up levels in the soil is fine, but how much of that's going to be available okay. right away? Okay, to sneak. Yes, okay, to sneak one more thing in. He just asked anything else on my soil test. You see, it's a problem, uh, Roger. I would tell you you're at 2.2 percent on average for base saturation K. We really want that in the four to eight percent range for corn and soybeans. So well, thanks for that question, Roger. Uh, really appreciate that. All right, before we run here, we've got to say thanks to our production staff, thanks to our guests who called in earlier today, and thanks to everyone who wrote in questions. Really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. And now, stay tuned for Shark Farmer Radio. <laughs>